Hey, a couple things. Uh, turn to Genesis chapter 6 while you're turning there. Uh, guys, uh, we are kicking off Men's Fraternity Part 2, uh, and it will be taking place over in the school and the, uh, the chapel over there, which we're really excited to have it there and to uh, share time there together. Um, and so it'll be uh, uh, January the 22nd we kick off. Uh, I think it's going to be a great time together. Hope you plan to come. Uh, we found out something kind of cool. Are you ready? Uh, Arnold, who's a part of our body here, uh, today went over to the prison in Norco to kick off men's fraternity in the prison. I don't know if you get excited about that. I think that's awesome. So, um, man, that I just can't imagine a better study. The other things, if you grabbed a bulletin, you'll see in it about marriage, uh, the marriage night we're going to have. And so I really want to encourage you, if you're a married couple, to come to this. Uh, uh, look at all the information. Uh, it's probably more important than ever because my wife opened up the bulletin and she went, Hey, I'm speaking at this, and I went, oh, I forgot to tell you. Uh, so we've got some really good illustrations now for that. And uh, so anyway, uh, uh, that's going to be a fun time together to really strengthen couples. Uh, uh, before I dig in tonight, let me just tell you, I can't help but to be excited. Uh, uh, here's why. Uh, today, this morning, we had the highest attendance on Sunday morning uh, the church has ever had in its history, except for an Easter. Uh, and that, that just is incredible to me, yeah. We had 39 people come forward and make commitments to Christ. I, I mean, and it's, I had prayed today because um, I, I don't, I don't, don't want to go on too long, but I got to tell you this. The church I came from, I love CCV, but there were some things I didn't like. And one was they never had a real baptistry put in and they didn't have a decision counseling area. So where we would send people for decisions was in a little hallway. And the baptistry kind of sat here and then the hallway was no bigger from here Tony, you think the piano might even be too far? <laughs> Maybe the piano. And we would jam people in the hallway, having them crying and trying to make decisions for Christ. And uh, so when I came over here, I got to be honest, and I wasn't sure if God was calling me here. I walked into the living room and I was like, oh, the goal. And it, that's my favorite room in the church. Well, now we've overflowed the living room. And guess what? We're into the hallway. And uh, so I've started calling it the holy hallway. Yeah, and so today I was praying, Lord, I pray we'd just be out in the holy hallway again. Well, I walk out after second service. Not only were you in the holy hallway, we had filled the whole hallway all the way into the backstage area. So now I think behind the screen is going to become a decision counseling area too. So uh, it's incredible to see what God's doing. And then um, the reason I kind of ran in here late is we're having a membership dinner tonight. For uh, We expected 140 people to come and, 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 and really commit to be members of our church. So they're having a dinner and Mike's going through all that it means to be a member. And uh, so I was over in there welcoming them. Uh, I don't know the exact number right now, but that, like I said, we were expecting 140. But they started having to set up tables and set up tables. I think we're over 200 people are over there right now while we're meeting here saying they want to be a part of our family. So I guess... I don't know. I just get real excited about being in this with you, being in this together. Uh, uh, then it's really cool because my Facebook uh, uh, inbox and my email has lit up with question after question from people in their study. Uh, Talia, who's my assistant, said, Chuck, she, she goes, I've been through this Bible reading a, a lot of times, but I got to be honest, when I hit Leviticus, I just usually go, oh, and it's not fun anymore. And I said, well, you know, what if, because uh, by the way, Leviticus is one of my favorite books in the whole Bible. I said to Talia, what if on my blog, I start like answering questions for people? And so we've already started that up some. Uh, uh, but the one question that came that I thought I don't want to take the time on the blog to write it because it would take too long to do is in Genesis chapter 6. 
And so if you've been reading through the word with us, uh, you already know that, you know, God created the heavens and the earth and everything he created was good except for one thing, that he did not want man to be alone. And then he created a helper for man and, and he put them in the Garden of Eden. And it probably thrills every woman in here to know that the word helper means, according to Webster's Dictionary, a relatively unskilled laborer who helps a skilled laborer by manual labor. Guys, we'll get into that in men's fraternity. No, not really. Uh, that's the English definition. Are you ready for this? The Hebrew definition is not even close. It says that, yeah. <laughs> All right. It says that uh, God created a rescuer for him. Isn't that wild? Yeah, and, and that's really what it means. It's, okay, good. We're getting into this tonight. Good. We're going to have a lot of fun. But you know what? Think about this. God said, I, Adam, it's not good you're alone. And I want to create someone, and he even says comparable to you, that fits with you, but then rescues you and, 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 and grabs hold of you. And that word is actually used a couple times. It's used, or not more than a couple, but it's used at a place where David was in trouble and he got rescued. And, and the word there has to do with the idea of, of being not lonely anymore and not lacking. And, and, and by the way, how does God meet that need in us? Well, one way is marriage, but, but it's not just that. It's in relational settings. God created us to be relational. Well, well, then what happens is Adam and Eve fall. And when they fall, they lose the ability to be relational. And as you were reading it, you probably saw that the man and the woman realized they were naked and they became ashamed. And what do they do? They hide from God and they hide from each other. And then they do something that I think is one of the most foolish things you can read in Scripture. They take fig leaves and cover themselves. And they cover themselves. I'm not going to show a picture, but just guess where they cover themselves. Have you ever touched a fig leaf? They make you very, very itchy. Now, I want you to picture this because you just read it. And so what happened is they became very, very afraid, and they took fig leaves and put it on themselves. And, and, I, and right away, they probably started finding out why that wasn't a good idea. And, I, and then it says, God came walking in the garden going, Adam, where are you? Where are you? My opinion is God knew, not, not opinion. We know God knew where they were. My opinion is he was going, I'll let you itch a little longer. Hey, where are you? And they're like, oh. And he's like, okay, hey, where are you? You know, they're dying. And, uh, uh, and, and then the tragedy of it all is they're having to be cast out of the garden. And if you read why, they were cast out of the garden so that they would not eat of the tree of life. That was one of the most loving moments of scripture. Because God did not want them to live forever or us, you and I, to live forever in a sinful state. In an unrelational state, a state where we can't relate with him, in a state where we can't relate with each other, in a state where our bodies are constantly deteriorating. And so he, he said he drove them out so they would not take of the tree of life and live forever. He said, I can't permit you to live like this. And God makes clothing for them. He actually makes the clothing for them to wear. Fig leaves weren't a good idea. And, and, and then he calls for them to live their lives, and Cain and Abel are born, and, 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 and then we know about the great murder that happens there and the tragedy of that, and, and then the generations begin to come, and very few people call on the name of the Lord, and then Noah shows up on the scene. And Noah was righteous in his generation. Noah was at a time where people were being cruel and mean-spirited and, and tearing at each other and not seeking God and into self, and, and, and he shows up on the scene. But, but the world is about to take a very desperate turn at this point, and that's where we are in Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. Now, it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, 
and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he has also flesh, and nevertheless his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. And the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. What's going on here? The mighty men of the old. You know, we, we call it mythology. Why? Because a whole idea of a myth versus a fantasy story is there's some realm of fact to it. And so we believe with the mythology there's some kind of truth there, the kernel of it, that's got to be true. Maybe not the exact story. Maybe it's the idea that, you know, there was an actual flood. And so there are myths about a flood. Although, by the way, Noah is a literal story, not a myth. But Hercules and 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 atlas and all these other things somehow tie back to this incredibly horrible invasion into the realm of mankind by the, the the sons of god so let's start talking about that who are the sons of god well first of all we know that they're angels in job chapter 1 verse 6 it says this now there was a day when the sons of god came to present themselves before the lord and satan also came along with them so this term is used of the angels that would come and, and they were the angels that, that God had created, these angelic beings. Satan was one of them and, and even now he's in their midst and he comes in the midst of them as they come to meet with God. So the word sons of God is one that's very clearly used in scripture to associate with angels. Peter talks about them and I'd like to have you hold on to this and turn with me over to 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 4. 2 Peter 2 4. And we're going to look where Peter begins to bring this up. As a matter of fact, Peter twice will talk about this group. And I think this will shed light on uh, what's actually going on for you. 2 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 and 5. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought the flood upon the world of the ungodly. It, God says, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, and notice it's tied into the time of Noah. Uh, this is who this is. And it's interesting that what's going on here is it, God says he reserved them to, for pits. Uh, do you see that where it says that he reserved them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment? Now, if you had a, a Greek Bible, the original Greek, the word that's used there for pits of darkness is a word Tartarus. It says that there were the, a group of angels that, that sinned that God refused to spare in the days of Noah. These are the sons of God that saw that women were beautiful, that came to them. Now, we don't know if they took the women by force or they inhabited a body and they seduced them. But somehow, uh, uh, either they possessed men and, or they somehow showed themselves. And this horrible, sickening event to God happened. And it created more wickedness on the earth than ever. But it says that God took those very angels who did this and he refused to spare them. He would not show them mercy. And he put them into a pit of darkness. And, and when we begin to understand where this pit is it becomes incredibly interesting to see what God chose to do at least to me it is and we'll see if it is to you he put them in the Tartarus the pit they would never ever escape from you see there's two places that demons are put when God deals with them 
They're there today. There are, are angels or, or demons or fallen angels. And uh, there are two different places when they're punished that they're sent to. One is Tartarus. And when they're sent to Tartarus, they're not let out until they're judged and then cast in the lake of fire. They'll never, ever be released. Now, if you were with us on the last week of 2008, on Sunday night, we talked about another pit that they're sent to, and it's the abyss. And, and the abyss is a place they're put into that terrifies demons that they're desperately afraid of. Uh, uh, but they're held there until in the very last few years of the earth's existence, they're set free from it. And, uh, you know, if, if clearly demons are somewhat active today, and we know that they are, but there's a time coming where the abyss will be opened and an incredible horde of demons will be released that's described in Revelation chapter 9, verse 1. But some of you know the story where Jesus got off of a boat in an area and began to walk, and a man who had been possessed of demons... And he lived amongst the tombs, rushed towards the apostles, rushed towards Jesus, and then Jesus began to deal with him. A man that when they would put chains on was so strong he could break them. And when he ran before Jesus and Jesus looked at him and he began to cast the demons out of this man, it says they were literally, Luke chapter 8 verse 31, they were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. They were begging Jesus, don't send us there. And they later say, let us go into this herd of swines. Don't send us to the abyss. Don't put us there. And they actually say to Jesus, if you come to torment us before our time. Now, it's kind of interesting to me that the demons knew they were going to lose. There's, there's no, according to the Bible, there's no belief system that Satan or the demons think they'll win. They know how powerful God is. They know how powerful Jesus is. Uh, uh, they may lie and try to pretend that they're going to win. But the reality is when the moment came and they faced Christ, and as a matter of fact, Jesus looked at the man and said, what is your name? And he talked to the demons inside. And they said, legion, we are many, which means there were probably 1,000 to 2,000 demons in this particular man. Uh, and you might ask, how could that occur? Well, the Bible actually does tell us. Jesus said, that when a, a, a demon is cast out of a man and the house outside the man is swept and put in order, that he goes to the waterless places. He goes to Tucson, Arizona. And, uh, and, and, and then he comes back to, to see what's there. And if there, nothing's re-inhabited that house, it says he goes and gets seven more worse than himself and re-inhabits it. And so what happens is this man had had that happen again and again and again. There were literally these Jewish exorcists that didn't understand what they were doing. And, and, and no one ever taught the man how to truly find true healing in his life. And, and it kept happening and kept happening and kept happening. So now Jesus is standing alone against thousands of demons and they cower before him. Now, I know if you're brand new to all this, you're going, wait a minute, can this be true? And, and I don't want to get off track tonight, but I want to tell you that there really is an evil realm. And, and that may not be enough to sway you over. But I'll tell you, if you start investigating what's going on out there, it, it, it's, you need to be careful with it. But it's there. And Jesus stood there in all power, but not in all glory. He didn't have to be in all glory. And they cower before him. And they beg him, let us go into the herd of pigs. Why? Because the abyss is such a horrible place to be. Uh, let me give you a parenthesis. Uh, uh, this is a Jewish area. Do you ever ask in your minds, why was there a herd of pigs in a Jewish area? Uh, yeah, if, you know, they weren't being pure, right? Yeah, and so, uh, 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 you know, Jesus said, 
you know what, I'll let you take over those pigs. I'll let you pay, make these guys pay for what they're doing. And, and the Lord had all sorts of victory all over this place. By the way, the man ends up having the demons cast out of him. When people run, they find him sitting in his right mind, completely healed, completely well, completely okay. And, um, and, and they're amazed at what God has done. But it, it makes them fearful. And Jesus says to him, I want you to go and tell everybody what God has done for your life. But the point I want to get out more than any other is, is there is a place called Tartarus. And when the, the, the angels in the time of Noah were sent there, and they're never to be released from it. They were reserved, according to 2 Peter 2, in pits of darkness, waiting for the judgment. But there is this other place called the abyss. And in Revelation 9, 1 and 2, they'll be released from there. Uh, we're going to come back to 1 Peter. But look over at the book of Jude. Chapter 1, verse 6. Jude 1, verse 6. Again, this is talked about. And the purpose of why I'm digging into this is that question of what's going on in Genesis chapter 6. Notice that in 2 Peter, it says that these are the angels who were disobedient in the days of Noah, that God will not spare. Now, let's go over to Jude 6 and notice this. Jude, verse 6. And angels who did not keep their own domain... But a man did their proper abode. He is kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Did you see this? When they're put in this place, they never get out. Now, you might ask this question, at least I would assume you're going to ask, why would God let all of these out? And, and here's the answer is because I really believe that God decided, you know what, all of you on the earth who don't, don't believe this real, all of you who wonder if I'm true, if all of you wonder if this is going on, I'm going to unleash in the last days a horde so that you would call out to me. I'm going to take away the veil that's hiding you from seeing this other realm so you will say yes to me. But, but over here, he says, this group I am so angry with and they were so defiled, I, I just never want them to be able to exist again and do what they did to people in the day that caused me to judge the earth. He said, I, I don't want this to happen uh, uh, from them. They're not allowed to revisit their, their action. Uh, the guilt is too great. But it says that in Jude 1 verse 6, that these angels who did not keep their own domain, they did not stay in the angelic realm, but abandoned their proper abode. He is kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now, here's something you might find interesting. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, what we're about to see is a, a, a question that wasn't asked, but you may have wondered this. Where was Jesus when his body laid in the tomb? Where did he go when he died? And the Bible tells us he descended. Uh, what did he do when he, he went into a descent? What happened in that moment? In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, it says this, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Why did Jesus die? To bring us to God. To bring us into a relationship with him. But he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. In verse 19, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. What did Jesus do? It says he went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison. Who are these spirits? These are the angels that have been put into Tartarus. And, and, and what happened when Jesus died? 
he went at least, if not, maybe he went more than this place, but his spirit went and visited and he made proclamation. The word proclamation is a very interesting word. It's a Greek word, caruso, and it can mean to proclaim the gospel or the good news of Christ, but it also can be used to proclaim victory. And uh, since we know that the demonic realm would not be spared and were reserved for judgment and could not choose to repent, then it makes sense that the word's application in this place would be he went and made uh, a victorious statement. In other words, uh, uh, whether this is actually what happened or not, it's got to be at least pretty close. Jesus went to this group in the demonic realm and said, you rebelled against me. You rebelled against what I've done. So guess what? For the next three days, I'm just going to be down here telling you, you lost, you lost, you lost. And just torture him to death. You know, I think that's what happened. You know, I, I think it'd be like a San Diego Charger having to live on a plane with the Pittsburgh Steeler right now. And, uh, you know, and, and, and so just making that and, and, and proclaiming the victory and proclaiming the victory over them, which brings a question. Why did they leave their proper domain? Now, we know part of it is they saw that the daughters or the women were beautiful. That they looked at women on this earth and they thought they were gorgeous, which I want to stop here. No, I'm not. I'm not going to get in. Yeah, I am. <laughs> that would freak me out if I was a woman. Uh, I'm just so glad it doesn't say that angels are up there checking guys out. You know, and uh, so, no, I, I really am not going to go there. Okay, um, but, but here's the point is, is a lot of people believe, and, and, and I think W.A. Criswell, um, the famous pastor, really nailed this one. He has a, a whole teaching of theology that a Dallas Theological and others picked up called the Scarlet Thread of Redemption. And what it is, is taking the Bible as a whole. And, and I think that we sometimes are in danger of not seeing the, 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 the totality of what Scripture teaches. That from Genesis to Revelation, there's a scarlet thread of redemption that just goes. And what's the scarlet thread? It's Jesus himself. And it really is true that the book of Genesis begins to talk about the coming day of Jesus Christ. Right from the fall of man, it talks about the one who would come and bruise Satan on the head and, and would be bruised on the heel. In other words, that, that, that the coming one, the Messiah, would be hit by the devil in, a, in, in a, what would appear to be a, a bruised fashion, a death blow, but he would rise again. But Jesus would strike such a strong blow to him it would literally be a mortal wound that would take him down completely and so we knew this one was coming and so for Genesis we see the scarlet thread of redemption paint itself all the way through scripture and, and we see it in every aspect we see it in the tabernacle we see it in the wandering in the wilderness we, we see it uh, in, in David in his life and what are we saying here it is have you ever, one of the questions I was asked, and I answered it in the blog, is why are there these genealogies? And one reason there's a genealogy in Genesis is because it's real people. But there's another one more important. The genealogies we know, and, and, and Moses didn't realize it as much. And, and today, people who don't understand the Messiah don't realize it as much. The genealogy was on purpose put there to trace down the line of Christ. So in other words, every one of those people you see in the godly line, and there are other genealogies, but there's a godly line, points the way that eventually would go from Adam to Abraham to David to the Messiah. And so what happens here is these angels come in to try to mess up this realm. The angels come in to try to pollute mankind, to make them detestable to God. Not just in immorality, but maybe in a, moral, a, a literal physical way. 
And that's what Chris Wells says. He says, when you look at the story, don't miss the fact that most likely not only was there incredible immorality happening, and, and it does give birth to immorality. We saw the wickedness of man become so great, God says, that's it. I, got, I can't let them keep doing this to each other. I can't let them keep doing this to each other. That there was something more here. It was trying to pollute the line of Christ and stop him from becoming. Because the only hope that you and I have in the eyes of a loving, caring God is when Jesus himself would stand upon this earth and live his life and die for us and rise again and call us into relationship with him. He died for us, it says in 1 John chapter 3. He died for us to bring us to God. And he was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. And when that happened, he went to preach to spirits now or went to speak or proclaim to spirits now in prison. And, and I really believe this and I think they're right and this would be like again coming from Chris Well in Dallas Theological that he was down there saying you didn't make it. Your plan was wrong. You always knew you would lose. You lost. And, and mankind has a chance to win and people have a chance to win and uh, this, this demonic realm that wants to wreck everything, you're just not going to get away with it. It's not going to work. And so where was Jesus? He was there speaking to the angels who were disobedient at the time of Noah. Now Real quickly, just for your own mind, I want you to know, and we're not even going to turn to look at it, but you might want to mark this down in your notes, that, that when it talks about the angels who fall, eventually, probably not all at once, but eventually one-third of all the angels that God created will turn and rebel against God. And uh, we know that to be the case. Uh, Revelation chapter 12 verses 3 and 4 talks about Satan be a great sign in heaven as a dragon and his tail sweeps away one third of the stars. And if literally in Revelation chapter 1 it says the stars symbolically represent angels. So one third of all the angels will choose to disobey and rebel against God and God will judge them. And, and a certain group of them is this group in Genesis chapter 6. But here's the question, will this be repeated? Will this be repeated in the last days? In other words, in the days before God would judge the earth the first time with the flood, will this happen again in the days before God will judge the earth with fire? Is it going to happen again? And, and, and the question in my mind is raised particularly because of Daniel chapter 2 verse 43. Now what happened is God gave Daniel a vision of the major kingdom groups that would come and affect the, especially the Jewish nation. That's why when you study Daniel, you always have to remember, it's not just giving history or prophecy about what would occur to us as history. It's, it's the events that would occur that would affect the Jewish nation. So he paints it all the way up to the time of Christ by saying there'll be the Babylonian Empire and the Assyrian and the Medo-Persian Empire, and then there'll be the, the Greek Empire and the Roman Empire. Then he skips and says, out of the Roman Empire will rise another kingdom in the last days that will affect the Jewish nation. And and by the way, I want to stop here real quick. Uh, uh, I think it's very important to watch what's going on in Israel today. And if you get Time Magazine, look at the opening editorial piece. And he says this. He says, more articles, have been, the, the editor of Time says, more articles have been written about the nation of Israel than any other event since 1948 except maybe the Cold War. And it's dominating our thought process. And the European Union today is actually trying to intercede in it. Well, we know at some point, based on Scripture, the European Union, which actually calls themselves the revived Roman Empire, will intercede there. Will a demonic group make a move like this in the last days? And in speaking of that last empire, it says in Daniel 2.43, And in that you saw iron mixed with clay... They will combine with one another in the seed of men 
but they will not adhere to one another even as iron does not combine with pottery. Well, who are the they that will seek to mix with the seed of men, but it just won't take? It's an unholy alliance. It's an immoral alliance. Is that going to happen again? When they are released, when they come, and I don't know. But in Luke 17, verse 26, it says, And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. And it was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating and they were drinking and they were buying and they were selling and they were planning and they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven. It will be just that way, the same, on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. So God says when Jesus is going to be revealed, it will be just like in the days of Noah, just like in the days of Lot. Does that include this? And, and we don't know. But it seems that Luke, or Daniel 2, seems to be pointing at something like this. Now, the bottom line we need to understand is this grieved God. And if you look back at Genesis with me, chapter 6, don't miss this. It says in verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. Now, I want to stop there because I've, I've shared this before and I think that all of you, or most of you looking around the room already have heard it, but let me go ahead and say it again. You know, we live in a world where we all walk around saying we're pretty good people, right? Everybody here, you know, actually you're a pretty good guy and you're a pretty nice woman and, and you're a pretty good guy, and, but are we really? I mean, and here's my point, ready? What if God took away your ability to hide your private thoughts? What if every thought you thought was broadcast? Now, I've used that one before, but I want to change it a little. What if I were, and I can't, but, but let's say this. What if I walked in tonight and said, hey, it's the most amazing thing. thing. We have found out that seven people in this church, not six, because we would never have a six here. Uh, as a matter of fact, we did not have a 666 baptism. We just had a 660 to 670. We weren't going to have. Anyway, and uh, no, none of the 666 on one of your baptisms. But, but, but let's say that we're, I walked in, I said, it's the most amazing thing. Seven people have been given a spiritual gift so they can read everybody's thoughts. And I introduced them. And, and, and they really could. They could, every thought you ever thought. How would you feel if they were walking around just looking at you? Oh. How good would they think you were? How, could you get away with it? I mean, the truth of the matter is, is that our thoughts reveal an intent of evil. Um, I think Pam and I have an amazing marriage. And and we just went through a period of time that has been one of the best ever, but she's been busier, I've been busier, things didn't go the way we wanted them to go. Uh, I don't know if this will affect you and, and you'll get what I'm going with, but what happened is we had saved up because we needed a new bed and, and so we decided to get one of those sleep number beds, right? And so we found out they were having a 50% off sale, you know, and I believe in shopping at Dos Lagos because I don't want them to go under. And uh, so we go in there and we order this bed and they go, oh yeah, but we can't get it to you for two weeks and we're like, Oh, is there any way? There's no, there's no way. So now we're in countdown mode for our new bed. It's kind of interesting. The minute we bought the new bed, our old bed now, it's a crummy bed. And uh, so we're waiting for this bed to come, and it's going to come UPS, and I get to put it together, which I'm going to stop here, does not thrill Pam. 
because I am the least mechanical person ever. She's begged me, please don't ever fix anything in our house. One time I said, Pam, I can install a new light fixture. She goes, no, don't, don't, please. And I'm not kidding, true story. I put up the new light fixture. I called her and I go, I did it, I did it. And this really happened. And I go, watch. And I flipped it on and the light came on and she goes, you did it. No lie. It goes, and it catches on fire. She said, please, stop. And uh, we had an out, uh, a lamp outside our house, you know, in the outdoor entryway. And, and it, it went out. And she goes, I'm going to call an electrician. I go, no, 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 I'm going to fix it. I go down to Home Depot. I get the thing. I put it up there. And, and, and I turn it on, and it's fine. It's like, yes. And I go, Pam, look, look. And I stood there going, see, I can do it. So we drove out, went to church, came back, and it had melted. And she goes, never again. Well, I said, I'm putting this bed together. So she already is not happy with me. And, uh, you know, she really isn't. She goes, I'll get somebody. I'll get Tim. Tim can do it. Don't you do it. Well, anyway, what happens is it comes, and I'm all excited, and the boxes are standing in our house, and the UPS guy, I kind of know, he helps bring it all in, and we're laughing about it. And she goes, oh, and I said, you run to the store and get something, and I'll, and so I tear our old bed down and put it all away and get it off. And, you know, it says in the directions, before you start, what's it say, everybody know? Check to make sure you have all the parts. Does anybody do that, really? Okay, I don't. And uh, so I, I'm halfway in, and guess what? One of the boxes didn't make it to our house. Instead of coming to us, it went to Salt Lake City, and then I don't know what other city. And so it was traveling the world, and I'm standing there with a half-done bed, and, and, and we're not going to be able to sleep in a very decent way. And Pam comes home, and she's not only disappointed she doesn't get her new bed. She's not, only, she's not happy I've torn everything down, and now it's a mess. And she's not really happy I didn't listen to her that we should have got someone who actually knows what they're doing. And, uh, and so we're stressed out. And then I, I go to put it together, uh, this next piece to at least get it partially put together. And boom, I jam my hand, cut myself, and I step back and I think, you know what? Man, I, I'm struggling here. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of mad at the sleep number company. I'm mad at UPS. I'm mad at, and then I started saying, God, I just can't be this way. I, I'm going to turn this bed into something not good. Every memory of it is not going to be a good thing. And it's going to be an awesome bet. I, I've got the maturity to wait a few days. I, I mean, I can. It, it's going to get here eventually. There's going to come a time we'll lay on our sleep number bed and be fine. I, I don't have to be like this. And, and, and Pam walked in the room earlier before I had that thought, and she said something, and I almost snapped at her. And I thought that bed could have turned into a symbolic thing about my not being kind and not being a, a, what we call today a level four husband. And so in my mind are all these thoughts. When she walked in the room, I looked at her and thought, oh, and I thought I was going to give it to her, but praise God, in my mind it all went, er, and I just smiled. <laughs> and she walked out, and had she heard those thoughts, do you think she would have said, oh, I love this man? And don't you think she might have been having some thoughts go the other way? Here's my point. God sees how cruel our thoughts can be and how, how mean we can be. Now, here's the bummer. We live in a world where those thoughts are getting unleashed all the time. We don't have a lot of checks and balances going on. And people are being wounded and hurt and destroyed. And God looks at it and says, what are you doing? I, uh, uh, I'm not going to get into detail. There's a little four-year-old little girl that God has allowed our church to intercede on behalf of, and she's just been wounded beyond what you can imagine. And God looks at that and says, I, I hate it when you do this. 
And notice what it goes on to say about that. Don't miss the heart of God here in verse 6. The Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. God was grieved in his heart. Now, now, God knew this would happen. He knew it was going to occur. And some people say, well, why did he let it occur? Why did he let it happen? And then this guy named Paul shows up. And Paul gets inspired by God to write the book of Romans. And in Romans chapter 9, he says this. He says, what if God was willing to endure the vessels of wrath so that he might shower grace on the vessels of mercy? Lots of people don't get what that's saying. Let me tell you what it's saying. God knew that people in Noah's day would be cruel and mean and evil and he would have to deal with them and it broke his heart to do it. He took no joy in it. And, and yet Noah gave him joy and his family gave him joy. God knew in our day that people could be mean and cruel and he's going to deal with it one day. By the way, a lot of people say, if there's a loving God, why does he let this go on? Guess what? It's days coming, he's not going to let it go on. But it says, but why did he do it? Well, what if, he said, and here's the answer, God would deal with all of the horrible things that are done by man so that he could get on his hands on those who would love him, those who would want mercy. Those, the vessels of wrath are people who don't want the mercy of God, but the, the vessels of mercy are the ones who want the mercy of God. And you know, here's, you may be shocked at this and it may be new to you, but let me tell you, all of you here tonight that love the Lord, he, God says, all of the pain I went through watching people do things like this, it was worth it because I got you. It was worth it because I got you. The fact that you would love me, the fact that you'd want to be with me, the fact that I would be able to take you into heaven for all eternity, the fact we'd live life together on this earth, it was worth everything. And, and the Lord went through all this pain, and it was pain because you, you would give him so much joy. And uh, there's an enemy who wants to wreck that. And when you see the teaching of Genesis 6, what you see is a God who looks down and says, I know that man is, is going to be worth it somehow because one day there'd be a person sitting in Crosswords Christian Church and they'd stand during worship and they'd sing to me. It would make it worth everything. It would make it worth everything. Uh, tonight, I want to ask you a question. Where are you at with the Lord? All of us have sinned. There's not a, all around you, there's not a person here who hasn't sinned. The question is, do you have forgiveness? Do you have mercy? Have you entered the place where you say, God, I want your love. I want your forgiveness. I want your cleansing. Remember, it says that Jesus, we saw this in 1 Peter 3. It says, he died so that he might bring us to God. Can you honestly say tonight that you're with God? Not a religious person. I'm talking about being in a true, intimate, personal relationship with God where you know him. And if you're not, let me tell you, he wants you. He loves you. He cares about you. He couldn't, he couldn't love you more than he does. And how do we enter that relationship? Well, it's interesting. I stopped reading in 1 Peter. It says that corresponding to this, baptism now saves us. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal of a clear conscience to God. Baptism is incredibly important to show an outwardly what we believe inwardly. But notice what he says it is. It's an appeal. It's not the water. It's an appeal to God. And so have you ever made an appeal to God to forgive you, to cleanse you, to change you, 
How do you do that? You do it by praying. And uh, if you're new to us, uh, Crossroads, the way we handle it here is at the end of every message, I go into a time of prayer. And I invite you, if you choose to, right where you're sitting, to whisper a prayer to God right where you're sitting, where you say, I, I ask for your cleansing. I ask for you to forgive me. I ask for you to make me new. I want to be brought to you. And I want to know you. And I want to be who you created me to be. And I want to live the life you have for me to live. And what we'll do is I'll invite you to pray that in just a moment if you'd like to commit yourself to the Lord. But I also want to say that tonight there might be somebody here or, or more than one person who at one time had an incredibly intimate walk with God, but you're not with them today. And I want you to know this. He wants you back. And how do you come back? How do you do that? You recommit. And so during this prayer time, I'm going to invite you tonight if you need to come back to an intimate relationship with God where you really are experiencing him. You're really living with him and for him. I'm going to ask you also to pray that prayer. So let's go to God in prayer. Father, I love your word. It intrigues me to no end. And studying it and reading it with so many other people in our body has just been so incredible. And Lord, when I hit that verse in Genesis chapter 6 that said your heart was grieved, God, I, I, I just am so sad that we so often do that to you. Back then you were grieved at the way man acted and today I know that we grieve you, Lord, sometimes when we quench the spirit and grieve the spirit and, and we find ourselves even as born-again believers being cruel or mean or, or we're not acting in love or we don't reach out and, and God, it grieves you when people get hurt and wounded. And God, the last thing we want to do is grieve you. I just pray that we're a, this is a room filled with people that wants to bring you joy. We want to be the ones you look at and you say it's worth it. And so, Lord, you love. You love so much, and I praise you for your love. Father, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would come in this room. And I ask, God, that you literally would fill this room with your presence and you would start touching any man or woman, any guy or girl who needs to commit or recommit their life to you that tonight would be a night of rejoicing of the angels because of those who would turn to you. Night, Lord, tonight would be a night where you write their names in the book of life and you draw them to you. And because of what Jesus did for us, Lord, now they're brought to you. And I pray that tonight, God, you would literally move and stir and call people to you. And we just are praying for them. And God, I pray they'd want this. I'm gonna ask that we keep praying. And if you're right with God, would you pray for anybody who needs to make this commitment? But I'm going to lead that prayer right now. I'll say a line and let you pray it with me. And tonight, if you would want to commit or recommit your life to Christ, I'm going to ask you to whisper this prayer. And if you're going to pray with me, would you let me know you're going to do it by lifting your hand in the air and looking at me, and then you can put it down. Is there anyone tonight that God's calling and you're ready to say yes to him and, and you're going to pray this prayer? Just lift your hand where I can see you. Praise God for oh, you right over here. Praise the Lord. That is so awesome. Praise God for you, man. That is awesome. Wow. And right over here, praise God. And up there, praise the Lord. And over here, praise God. Man, we praise, oh, wow. Praise God for you right here. Praise the Lord. Wow. Each one of you, it's so incredible. And up here, praise the Lord for you too. Wow. All of you that God's touching, let's just whisper this prayer together. Say these words. Say, Lord Jesus, I know you love me. And I know you died on the cross 
to forgive me of my sins, to heal me of my hurts, to cleanse me completely, to make me alive, to make me new, and to make me yours. And I say yes. I want this. And I want you. So I open my heart to you. Please fill me with your love and fill me with your spirit. And help me be who you have always created me to be. And help me live the life that you have for me to live. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.